Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of our podcast, Med Family. I am the host, Eric Acker, with Karen this week. Hey, guys. Uh, we'll probably try to make this a little bit of a shorter episode. I'm not sure how much topics we really have to cover since uh, last week I only really had about three days of my rotation and of course we had thanksgiving so it was a relatively short week and not much in the way of third year or sorry fourth year medical school life um just mostly family life (laughs) yeah um so what i guess we'll kind of kick it off a little bit um thanks well at least as far as the rotation goes we we did um last week we did uh our two days in the lab and one day in clinic, uh, and so far today, we, as of today, Tuesday, we've done one day in the lab, one day in clinic. <laughs> uh, most of the teaching seems to be really uh, focused on the clinic side of things, where, we, where he has a lot more time to talk to, not really a, t- a lot of time to talk to us and uh, go over ECGs and uh, different concepts in cardiology, but uh, he seems to have a, a little bit more, he feels like he's more free to do that during clinic. He, we still see about 30 patients a day, so oh. it's, uh, it's that's surprising when you when at the lab days it seems like you only get through like two or three patients. Yeah, yeah, we, we yeah, and like like on a lab day we'll have like two three patients. He he actually does uh see, he does let us go a little bit early, so around five six o'clock on lab days he just kind of lets us go, and I think he still does another case after that, so he might be working a little bit later than we are. And then he, of course, I think is doing a case early in the morning. Sometimes he goes to one of the other hospitals, Piedmont, I think, and does a case there early in the morning and then comes over to Navicent and does the rest of his cases. Uh, I guess um, because we're currently not uh, totally allowed to do <laughs> rotations at Piedmont that he doesn't bring us there. So... Well, Piedmont got bought out, and so the contracts are still... Yeah, it's a contract issue. It's been long, ongoing, and yada, yada, yada. I don't know all the ins and outs if I just know that a lot of preceptors are kind of nervous about taking a student, you know, students to Piedmont just because of um, whether you know, we're credentialed or whatnot, and other preceptors kind of shrug it off and go, you know what, you're not going to touch and hurt anything, just... Just as long as you stick close to me, you're you're not going to have a problem. Uh, so, <laughs> I, I think some are just uh, being cautious and not, and some are just uh, not having, not 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 as worried about it. So, uh, I'm not trying to say anyone is being irresponsible. I, I think it's just a, a little a bit of a gray area. But and I'm not I'm not necessarily complaining because that means I don't have to wake up super duper early. And I know that sounds a little lazy. Uh, well, but, we're not getting little miss is not a, a great sleeper at night, so we're not getting a ton of sleep. Um, so it's nice to have your time to get in closer to nine as opposed to five thirty. Yeah, and I know there's going to be a, at least another rotation in my future that at least two rotations are going to have um, busier hours. 
Uh, I think my ED rotation is going to be a little bit busier, and I think my um, internal medicine rotation with Dr. Shikarapa is going to be a little bit more hour-intensive. Hour uh, so <laughs> I'm happy to kind of bank some of the free time now and <laughs> know I'm going to kind of suffer for it a little bit later in the future. And also, it's like it's fourth year as well, so it's not, I'm not checked out. I, I, wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't say I'm, I'm checked out of the process. Like, obviously, I still have to pass everything. Uh, still have to match, but and, and definitely I'm doing rotations that I'm pretty interested in, so I, I really want to learn as much as I can. So uh, I'm not really checked out, but it is nice to not have to be up early. Uh, the the lab, especially on lab days, the labs are so I like working with my hands, so I, I know that's something that I put on my CV, I put on my personal statement, and I like working with my hands and doing things and being active. Uh, that's kind of how I learned is I learned from doing things. I learned from being active. Um, and so you would think the lab would be a perfect place for me to, you know, it's basically like the, it's, you know, the equivalent of the OR for cardiologist. And I think the difference is that you're just not allowed to do anything. Like obviously the, the lab, they just get, uh, IV access and, then they do the calf and you know it's just kind of a one-man job or one man and a nurse uh you know uh or in in anesthesiologist but you don't really have a lot of role to to play as a med student and certainly like we're working with someone's heart uh we're working with you know things that can possibly go wrong and you don't want a medical student poking around in the heart i guess so and maybe there's other students out there who uh, will say, yeah, I've definitely done something really cool with the heart or something like that. And that's good for them. I, I just don't, I don't think Dr. Uh, Dr. Poku is uh, particularly uh, lining up to have us, you know, move catheters around and whatnot. I think it's a special skill that you learn uh, through fellowship. And um, so essentially the lab is just kind of watching and trying to learn as much as we can. And so sometimes we, we do get a little bit of lessons taught by Dr. Poku during the lab, and he'll try to point out a few things. The the reps that come in that helps that help do the navigation and the mapping of the heart, they also do a lot of teaching as well. So we try to get what we can, but there's definitely hours <laughs> of time where we're just kind of staring at screens and I'm not really sure what we're looking at, and we're just waiting for things to happen. And so it can be a little bit more tedious and boring. And again, I think if I was doing it, I would think a little bit differently and maybe I'd be happier or more excited. Uh, but standing there and doing nothing, it's hard to be really excited about doing not a whole lot. Uh, I don't know. We're still trying to find little avenues to be, I don't know, either be helpful or learn more. So something that we'll work on in the upcoming weeks, I think. But, it's it's nice to be there's three of us medical students so it's not like I'm um there by myself and I have to try to entertain myself we can always have kind of side conversations and this isn't like my general surgery rotation where side conversations got met with <laughs> a little bit of derision uh, this is uh, they seem to be okay with uh, some side conversations as long as it's not uh, outrageous and to be honest my my current preceptor is pretty laid back as far as. The topics of conversation he's uh he's i think he's got a pretty wide tolerance for topics from all the jokes that we've been uh hearing <laughs> so um 
But that that being said, it doesn't. I don't want to make it sound like my preceptor is just there to you know crack jokes the entire time, and he's not teaching. He's definitely spending a lot of time teaching, and he's he's a very smart individual. I think one of the things that's harder is that he's like uh, he's very mathematically inclined. He uh, he really likes numbers and math, and that that was something like, I think a passion of his when he was an undergrad. And so a lot of what we talk about is mathematics and numbers and how to convert. I mean, we had a whole conversation on converting Fahrenheit to Celsius and back. Uh, I'm not even really sure. I think it was because one of the ablation needles, uh, they had the wrong the wrong units to be displayed. And then we got into a long conversation of how to do it um, just in our heads. And, and he definitely values being able to do things in your head <laughs> as opposed to um relying on like a calculator like i was i think today i was talking to one of our other med students about how you can just get the md calc app on your phone and you can look up things like chadvas scores and sepsis um, scores where you pump punch in data uh, you you know click little slide buttons and they'll pump out a score for you and it kind of directs treatment it's used a lot in internal medicine so if you are an internal medicine person i definitely would recommend the md calc app it is free uh, at least on the app store it is for apple um but he was like oh no you can do that all in your head you don't <laughs> you just have to know uh, you know the values of each one and He's right, but at the same time, it's like it's so much easier just to you know slide the buttons and get the number you want and move on. So, uh, well, so last week you had talked about one being the plumber and one being the electrician of the two cardiologists that you have followed. So, what are the different procedures that you've seen with this cardiologist that you that what are the differences in procedures that they do i guess yeah uh, so the the biggest difference i can tell is uh, again i only followed um dr jalad who you know if you're going between plumber and electrician for cardiology dr jalad is a is a plumber so she goes into the the arteries and veins of the heart and does uh stents uh and th- that kind of work. Um, so from the week I I was with her, she did a lot of stents. So she would go in and look for stenosis of the, the LAD or the um, the lateral descending artery, um, the circumflex, the yeah, all the different. <laughs> Sorry, all the different arteries. It's late, um, and so and then if you find stenosis, can you put a stent in there? Can you put you just use a balloon to make it bigger? And then there was even um, there was even a procedure where I think they used like an ultrasound to break up calcified um, part parts, and they were the rep was talking to me about possibly using that to break up calcification on. Um, valves in the future but so that that was what dr jalad the plumber does you know they go in and make sure that the blood vessels that supply the heart muscle with blood are clear and working and that you know if you're having angina then they can possibly solve that for you uh they can reperfuse certain areas of the heart etc um so that was more or less her work this particular doctor, dr poku uh, being an electrophysiologist uh, he, I, I always feel like he spends more time inside of the heart. He doesn't really go. There's like a, a rare occasions he'll he'll go into the 
coronary sinus and he'll go into uh, all the coronary veins uh, but it seems like a lot more times he's in the actual heart chambers and so they'll do uh, ablations where they're if you're having let's say uh, atrial flutter or AFib uh, something that you know part of the atrium is sending off electrical signals that is interrupting the conduction, the normal conduction pathway from the SA node to the AV node uh, that's maybe setting off uh, the, the ventricles to fire a little bit faster or just making the atrium, uh, atria's uh, quiver. Uh, he does the procedure. He goes and tries to find where those, uh, those electrical impulses are coming from and then, you know, burn them out uh, to get rid of them. Or if, um, they can't really, they think it's really kind of too difficult to, to, or they've tried multiple times to deal with electrical impulses coming from the atrium to the heart. They, they might just burn. Um, I, I think, I, I don't know if they purposely do it or if it's like an accident and they just have a workaround for it. Because sometimes some of these impulses come near the AV node and if you burn enough, you can block conduction from the SA to the AV. Um, or you're just in perpetual, uh, persistent AFib, and really all we got to do is just make sure your ventricles are firing at the right rate, and so then they just put in pacemaker, uh, pacing wires. Uh, so they put basically a pacemaker, um, and then he'll also do what's what called a watchman procedure. And I, I actually didn't really know what a watchman was until today. I, I always thought the watchman was either a fancy defibrillator or a fancy uh, pacemaker. But apparently, if you... The indications for it, let me just start with that, um, seem to be really centered around patients who are in AFib and they have been on anti-coag, but they've had episodes of bleeding, like GI bleed. That, you know, GI bleed is obviously very dangerous, especially in older I think it's a dangerous period, but it's, uh, I think, especially dangerous in the older populations because, uh, you know, GI bleeds can bleed very fast and profusely and not be noticeable until, you know, a lot of blood loss has been, has occurred. And, of course, if you're on uh, anticholag, uh, then you bleed a lot faster and more and longer. And so there's certainly a higher danger uh, of GI bleeds being more, more, you know, leading to more mortality. So in those patients, you know, who have AFib and they've had a GI bleed, uh, maybe the, the concern is that uh, anticoag is probably not the best long-term solution for the patient. Because essentially AFib, you're, you're just worried about the, the turbulent blood flow in the left atria of the heart. And that, you know, I think it's in medical school, we learned like a triad, like turbulent blood flow, um, I, I know I, I go over a triad, and I don't know the three. Uh, <laughs> it's late. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a triad, um, and I might, I might try to look it up here in a second, but um, the basically that turbulent blood flow um, allows for the presence of clotting, you know, clots to form, or that's the theory anyways. That, um, let me just, I think it's Virchow's triad. Um, yeah, so the Virchow triad is, uh, yeah, I, sh I should know this, stasis of flow, turbulent blood flow, presence of hypercholag state, 
uh, which is like Lindau five factor five syndromes and then uh, intervascular wall damage. Those are all things that can lead to clot formations, thrombus formations, etc. And so the thought is that basically you create uh, this turbulent blood flow because the atria is not pumping synchronously. It's not, it, you can just imagine instead of squeezing the chamber and pushing the blood out and into the ventricle, it's kind of squeezing, but just a, just a little bit and just kind of more of um, just quivering, I guess. And that turbulent blood flow of blood's pooling, it can cause clots to form. And specifically in the left atrial appendage, there's a little kind of compartment in the atria, left atria is called the appendage. And essentially a clot can form there and then it can get dislodged, move into the ventricle, and then from the left ventricle it can go anywhere in the body. And most likely, most the most commonly that's you know, that's what we think strokes can can occur from is that plot moves up to the head and then suddenly you got a and you got an ischemic stroke. And that's obviously not that's less than ideal. Now you can live with AFib. Most people can live with AFib being collagged or of course we try rate control, rhythm control. Um, but you know, if it's persistent and you can't really get rid of it, you've tried cardioverting, all these other things. You can live on on with AFib <laughs> as long as you're on anti-colag because you don't want to have that stroke. Um, but then now, what if what if anti-colag is no longer an option because or is a risky option because you're bleeding issues in your GI tract? Well, then you want to do the Watchman. The Watchman is basically a kind of this mesh. Um, I think that's basically how I can describe it. It's kind of a mesh thing that they just stick into that left atrial appendage. And now blood doesn't pool, doesn't stay. There's no blood stasis in that left atrial appendage. And so no clots can form in there. And so the left atrium can quiver as much as it wants, but clots won't form or theoretically won't form. Um, and so that's what the watchman is. You go in with a catheter, um, go through the venous system into the right atria, you poke a hole uh, in the septum between the right atria and the left atria, and then you push this catheter through and you open it up and it creates this, again, this mesh ball kind of thing and shove it in the left uh, left atrial appendage and you check, you know, they still have to be anti-colide for a few weeks and then you check it a little bit later and there you go. Uh, Sorry, I know, I think it was going down the list of things. So he, he does place uh, the watchman's um, defibrillators and pacemakers. He does the ablations. He does electrophysiological studies, which essentially are just trying to find out uh, where things are coming from. Is the sinus node working? You know, where is everything electri electrically working and conducting? Because, again, that's the two parts of the heart. Is Of course, the functionality of the heart is pumping blood <laughs> and that, that that works in the conjunction of electrical impulses through the mus uh, the heart cardiac muscles to squeeze the the blood out as you know as a pump does but also the plumbing side of it where the muscles need nutrients and oxygen in order to do the work and so those two things combine electrical electrical and blood supply allow the heart to do its job so that's uh, <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> and, and other electrical physiologists can do other things uh, they all have training to some degree to do catheterization so some i think some might even go into the cor uh, coronary arteries to uh, provide stents or 
you know, drill, you know, not sure what the, all the things that they do, but uh, basically try to treat stenosis of the cor- uh, uh, carotid arteries. And so there's a lot of um, things that the cardiologist can do, uh, the, at least the ones that are interventional. There's always these jokes. Um, they like to, I mean, of course, they're a cardiologist. They, none of these jokes are disparaging of them. Uh, I think it's like, how do you hide money from an orthopedic surgeon? You put it in a book. How do you hide money from a radiologist? You put it in the patient's room. And how do you hide money from a cardiologist? You, know, you can't. They know how to find money anywhere. So... <laughs> Uh, so they, uh, that's the joke anyway, I, I've been told that, <laughs> that they, they know how to f- do a whole bunch of stuff and they kind of corner that market. And he, he did say that they're essentially like interventional radiologists to a large extent. Um, so at least as far as the heart goes. So that's essentially, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't dare say that that's all he can do, but I, they do that's require, what seen so far. that's what we've seen so far. I haven't actually seen a watchman and I think. Hopefully soon we'll see one. Um, yeah, so that's that's what we've been working on. It, again, it's pretty cool. There's a lot a lot of variety. I, I think one of the things with the field is just patience, um, being willing to because like one of the things that he kind of had at least that makes some of the cases very long is that you'll have a patient with a PVC or a PAC. Um, pre-arterial uh, arterial contraction, pre-ventricular contractions, um, or complexes. It depends on how you're looking at the definition. Um, and so you go in there and try to figure out where that's coming from, where that extra impulse is, and then ablate it. And what sometimes makes the case long and tedious is that you'll go in and ablate that section and you think you're done and then you find out that it wasn't just that location there was another one hiding within that complex in in what you saw in the ecg there was you know that one of course that we just ablated but there's also another electrical impulse coming from somewhere else that was hiding within that electrical impulse and you get you'll hunt that down and (laughs) so it tends to be a a long process and of course they uh, uh during the ablation process they have to be careful uh because the posterior uh when you a lot of times they're, they're ablate around the pulmonary veins uh so the pulmonary veins coming into the left atria and that is generally theorized to be a source of many of the uh aberrant currents is coming from the pulmonary veins causing the left atria to contract and of course conduction goes to the right atria and causes that to contract so they ablate around the veins to break up that current knock out the current but just posterior uh this is where anatomy comes in handy just posterior to uh uh, the heart and left in the left atria because left atria is basically the most posterior aspect of the heart as it lays anatomically in your body uh, is the esophagus and so apparently a risk factor is the uh, atrioesophageal fistula you don't want to which is a fancy way of saying we created a hole and a connection with the esophagus and the left atria which uh, they do they they serve as two separate <laughs> systems, cardiovascular and uh, GI. So you definitely don't want those crossing like that. That would definitely not be good. And so they have a lot of uh, caution around that, which I think makes it a little bit more complicated just to to be careful of. Um, 
I know I'm just kind of rambling here. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, I, my whole point to that question was that even within specialties, there's a, a wide variety of, I guess, specialists <laughs> and what they choose to practice. I mean, even uh, when Eric was working at the orthopedic office before he got into med school, the orthopedics all specialized in some... Yeah, like they like to do hands, like yeah. yeah they, well, and that was a difference between. And it's very, very unique. Um, regions of the country have this thing where, uh, like in where I was in Washington, it was a little bit cl- so, so it was close to Portland, Oregon, a metropolitan area, and so fellowship trained surgeons was really a big thing. Like you, uh, you can have a fellowship trained surgeon that really just specialized in upper extremity, shoulders, elbows. And one that upper extremity that liked to do elbows and hands, and then lower extremity ones, and a spine one. Like you had all these uh, different surgeons who can who really went to a fellowship to do just specifically those joints or that uh, facet of orthopedics, and so they that's what they did. And um, then going back going over to Middle Georgia, there's a lot of orthopedics. I'm sure there's some that are fellowship trained, whether that's sports med or whatnot. But there's a good number of the orthopedics, at least that I worked with, that are just generalists. They did the five years in an orthopedic specialty or residency, sorry, and uh, they didn't want to go to fellowship. They just wanted to go practice, and they are capable and <laughs> part of their training. They are able to do everything, just like the, the fellowship trained ones are. And so they, you know, they can do. I think some of them talked about how they used to do back surgeries and they used to do all sorts of different surgeries and as time has gone on and maybe fellowship fellowship trained surgeons came into the community they just backed off of certain aspects of orthopedics um but that was yeah very unique where like i I followed dr casey cornelius and he was a a knee and hip orthopedic and i think he really liked to do knees that was kind of the thing he really liked to do uh hip wasn't bad he just didn't like it as much he liked knees um and so that's all he saw in his clinic was arthritis of the knee, sprains, MCL tears, etc. cetera. Uh, whereas in here, when I was following Dr. Um, Bill Wiley, he, you know, from one patient room to the next, you could have a wrist pain, you could have an ankle pain, you could have <laughs> hip pain, knee pain, you know, like you're just going down like the entire musculoskeletal system. And I, I kind of liked that in a way because it was like it's not just all osteoarthritis of the knee every day. Uh, it's you know kind of a little fun little mix, but I, I understand different regions of the country that you know they don't always allow you to not not necessarily someone's stopping you, but like you kind of want to carve out your niche, uh, and so you just do that. And there's certainly people who uh, you know that that's what they're really interested in. And like uh, for example, like a really niche uh, field in orthopedics is I believe hip scopes. Not a lot of people. And people can do uh, arthroscopic hip scopes, but the, you'll find that there's not too many that will do like labial tears uh, of the hip. There's like one or two surgeons in every area that will do it, and a whole bunch of your generalists will just like, nope, not touching that. Uh, <laughs> so, and the ones that do it are like very specialized. It's like the thing that they do. So uh, I know Karen's whole point there was like, you know, every specialty there's a lot of uh, variety. And you can make your practice how you want to. Um, I'm sure that's the same with this particular doctor. That he just has 
this is his kind of menu options that he will pick from. And if there's something else that he's like, oh, maybe you benefit from this, he can refer you out to, to go do that with somebody else. Um, so you do what you like kind of mentality. Um, but that, that's probably that's been the rotation so far. Definitely learning a lot. Definitely going over lots of ECGs. Um, really learning kind of algorithms of uh, patients who come in based off of, you know, like syncopic episodes or heart palpitations, what's the workup on these patients and uh, how we manage them. And even some patients who are just like, okay, they they have a pacemaker. They have this like, oh, one, one kind of, uh, I know we're going on these little tangents, but one kind of thing I thought that was interesting is when you first put in, I'm going to blank on whether it's a pacemaker or a defibrillator, but just, just holding your mind, it could be both. Uh, you put in this implantable device. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you have to, you, you test like the, the amount of energy needed to, to provide like conduction. You know, if you, let's say I think defibrillate or pace, let's do pace, let's just do pacing. In order to pace the heart, you have to have the device expend a certain amount of energy uh, to, that will transmit into the to the cells and cause the contraction. Well, you do that in the electrophysiological lab. You test and you set the device to that setting, um, but that's usually a, actually a higher setting than what you will need in three months. So as the body heals from the procedure and scar tissue or um, connective tissue starts basically encasing the device and whatnot, uh, the conduction actually gets better and you don't need as much electricity or voltage to carry the current down and cause the contraction that you need or pace, you know, the pacing that you need. And so you check it in a few few weeks or months later and then you adjust the voltage down. Um, and then, of course, you're, you're constantly getting these things checked out and, oh, you have 10 months left on the battery and stuff like that. So obviously battery changes are part of the complication but but if you don't ever you know adjust the voltage down the battery will get like dead very quickly <laughs> so um anyway i want to i kind of i guess want to move a little bit off of the, the yeah. rotation a bit <laughs> um we did have thanksgiving uh last this last week which was always fun it's always karen's sister and her uh, fa- sister's family came into town and helped us put on thanksgiving with the family and um, their kids played with our kids, and it wasn't a complete disaster. I was a little worried that <laughs> our kids are very energetic, and sometimes that leads to fight. You know, they're, they're young, and they they still are trying to figure out how to play with other people <laughs> and how not to always get their way when it comes to playtime. And I was a little worried that that would be um, a detriment you know, but it seemed like they all played pretty well, and yeah. um, I, I don't. I don't think our oldest really understands the concepts between uh, like cousin and brother. But you know, it was really cute. You know, he would cause call, calling his cousins his brother, like my brother, and <laughs> and then I think also he was calling them my friends. Uh, but it's it's cute. Um, I, all the, all the kids seem to have a pretty good time, even though most of your sister's kids are a bit older than ours. Yes. 
Even like though, I think the older than even Oliver is, honestly. Yes, um, I think the youngest is twelve. Yeah, so quite a bit. Yeah, but um, yeah, it went well. They got to meet Evelyn, who is going to scream here in a minute. I'll try and get her away from that. Yeah, if you mic. hear an extra voice, it's <laughs> just our youngest making her presence known. <laughs> um. Yeah, so they got to meet her, and um, they actually hadn't met our um, second youngest, Judah. Oh, we, yeah. Because um, they moved right before we left for med school. They left for... Um, Florida. Florida. So um, we hadn't seen them in a little over three years. Four years. Four years. So... Even um, though we live only a state away. Right. <laughs> um, so it was really nice to to see family. Um, and it was nice that um, some of our... We we didn't have to host them in our... I mean, they were at our house all, all day, but they could leave and go sleep somewhere else. And so we weren't worried about keeping... Oh, yeah. We're very keeping, thankful for that. One of our friends let, you know, they were out of town, so they let us use their house for that kind of like an Airbnb, and that was. <laughs> I mean, that was a big blessing. We could we could have had them all at our house, but it just would have been a lot of bodies, and um, a lot of bodies in a small space, and sometimes that can cause uh, tensions. So it's always nice when. You know, and in the evening they can go and be their own family in a different place, and then they can come back in the morning, and festivities can resume. So that was yeah, it turned out good. Our first turkey turned out good. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a complete disaster. Yeah, That's I know. We, it I just took really a sure. couple it, it hours it wasn't, longer it wasn't than deep fried. anticipated. Karen would still refuse to let me deep fry, no matter how much I badgered. Uh, <laughs> You weren't actually serious. I, I would totally do it. I would. <laughs> I would uh, I'd get a fishing line and a pot, and I would do it. If I get the right kit, I, I'm sure I could yeah. deep fry a turkey. We'll see. Maybe next year. <laughs> she says. <laughs> He'll forget. <laughs> I will not forget about deep fried turkey. But I mean, eventually we'll move up to like turducken. No, we will not do turducken. <laughs> Or what's what's the cake, the pie stuffed in a cake? Oh gosh, I forget what that one's called. Oh yeah, we got all yeah. No, we we won't be doing that. Getting but. fancy. <laughs> it was it was nice to have family come, um, and we won't. Working through a yawn there. <laughs> we won't be hosting again until uh, New Year's ish. So. Oh yeah, my my folks are gonna come by right, just right after Christmas. So, yeah, it'll be it, yeah. It's been been a pretty nice holiday, and I I had Thursday Friday off, and so Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday. I don't think we really did much of any Black Friday shopping. So we did none. We did none. Karen so efficient at her shopping list that we we did not have to do any of that. Well, no, I was looking at stuff on Monday for Cyber Monday and. I didn't pull the trigger on anything, but I just have stuff for our family to get. And realistically speaking, it's for only like two or three of the kids. So, 
again, Karen's very, very efficient at this holiday shopping thing. I'm but, efficient at the shopping. I haven't wrapped yet. I need to wrap so that we can send stuff out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah one step at a time. Um, yeah. Uh, I think that's about it. Yeah, I think, we're just so. plugging along. Uh, Eric has asked you, you have the... Yeah, so this weekend. weekend is, and this week is going to be kind of nutty. Um, so I start Oski's on the 1st, which is our kind of equivalent to uh, Step 2CS, which it used to be required and no longer is, and so nobody ever takes Step 2CS. But our ECFMG uh, certification requires some kind of clinical skills certification, and so we do what's called the Oski's. And from what I understand, it's basically... 10 iHuman cases that you can run on training mode and then do test mode and submit soap notes, just kind of like what we do during our, our um, clinical shelves um, during the online portion of our, shell, uh, our core rotation. So this won't be too crazy, but then on top of that, um, I do on the first, I do a speaking test for the OET or the occupational, uh, occupational English testing i think is what it is it's another another ecfmg requirement for graduation to show that you are proficient in the english language uh definitely worth four hundred dollars <laughs> but it is a requirement so i'm um, doing the speaking test on uh thursday and then i will be traveling to miami to do the in-person uh written test on uh, a computer test i I'm a little bitter. I found out that some of our our um, peers from the island don't have to fly back to, you know, they don't have to drive to Tampa. They don't have to drive to Atlanta even uh, that because their address is in, uh, out of the country that they can just do it remotely on their computers, which <laughs> it's like, well, if that was an option, I would have loved to, you know, not have to drive five and a half hours to Tampa but you know, like such as life. I but I did run in. You know, I did meet, make some connections with one of our students who did a rotation out in Tampa. Uh, he he recommended a particular uh, intern that has opened his house up for other students to come and crash. Uh, I'm not going to be able to have a bedroom or anything to myself, but I just figure uh, uh, he's letting me use a couch, so I will crash on the couch. I will pay him $20, <laughs> go take the test in, at 11 o'clock in the morning, and then drive back <laughs> to be home, hopefully Saturday night, to do whatever family stuff we want to do. So, uh, yeah, so we're doing OET, OSCEs, um, and then on Monday I have a dinner with a program in uh, southern Georgia. Uh, I'm debating... I'll have to talk to you. I haven't actually talked to you about this, but the, there's a <laughs> tour of the program on... Tuesday, and I just have some concerns regarding my clinical time and whatnot. Like I, I will really, really do want to go and see the program, but at the same time, uh, like I want to get as much out of this particular rotation as I can. Uh, I'm relatively the the most senior um, medical student on the team, and I just don't want to like <laughs> let people down. So. I'm de seriously debating just going to the dinner on Monday night and kind of uh, trying to excuse myself from the uh, tour on Tuesday, just just so I don't um, I don't hurt my rotation too much. 
Um, but I have to talk to you more about that. I think that's a little bit more of a, a big conversation. Uh, just because, you know, obviously you, you go to these programs, offer you the, the chance for what's basically called a second look. Uh, they're not usually calling it a second look. They're just calling it, you know, he'd come to our program. Uh, but obviously you got to take it seriously and you got to be professional about the whole thing. And you, you don't want to look like you're not interested. You definitely don't want to look like you're you're flaking out on them. So uh, I'm going to have to work that out. <laughs> Uh, just because it's a morning morning deal, and I would basically not be able to do clinic at all, at all on Tuesday, and I, I just don't know how that's going to work in my rotation. So anything, something for us to discuss. Uh, and that's essentially kind of the the rest of the week. <laughs> it was just doing OSCEs for the first, I think, 10 days. Yeah. Uh, I think we have interviews, of course, coming up, just kind of as far as the match process goes. Uh, I don't really get the impression that there's going to be a second wave. I was kind of hoping that maybe there'll be a second wave and my I can increase my interview numbers a little bit and provide a little bit more options and some considerations of programs that maybe we haven't considered. But, uh, you know, I, I did send out two letters of interest, which, uh, you know, I, I wasn't really sure I was going to do to begin with, but I did too. I might do more just to see if I can get the ball rolling anywhere. I'm not, it's not like I'm not happy with the ones I have. I, I really am, but sometimes you have a, a luxury of options. But so far, it doesn't really seem like a second wave of interview invites is coming. It seems like what we got in the initial batch is what we got. And <laughs> we're just kind of getting this slow trickle of rejection letters. And sometimes it's, I mean, when you apply to 170 programs, there's going to, there's bound to be a quite a, a number of them that you're just like, did I apply to that program? I guess so. <laughs> so uh, that that's kind of what I'm, I think, like, uh, today it was a Kentucky, you know, a program in Bowling Green, Kentucky, said, no thanks, thanks, but no thanks. Um, so it's just kind of a slow trickle of just some rejection letters, just letting you know, uh, it is what it is. Again, 170 something programs. We talked about it earlier on other podcasts that we're going to get probably more rejections than we are going to get acceptances. And that's obviously true. So <laughs> that is, I guess the, the week looking forward. Um, and the, at least as far as the update as the ERAS process goes, um, yeah, so I just I guess we'll do a, a bit of closing here. So if you want to follow the podcast, you can follow us on um, any of the podcasting websites, uh, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, etc. Anything you, anywhere you can find podcasts, you should better find us. Um, if you want to interact with us a little bit more, Karen is operating our Instagram. Uh, MedFamilyMD is the Instagram username i'm not sure what they use in instagram but that's how you would find us at family md karen posts pictures updates and whatnot on there uh and then of course if you have any questions send her a message and we'll be happy to try to answer as best we can um anything else you can think no, of have a good week you guys and we'll try and and get you more next week all right bye <laughs>